Welcome to At The Movies. Sit back, crack a beer, and enjoy. Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize, a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. You get the picture? You laughing now? You got leads. Mitch and Murray paid good money. Get their names to sell them. You can't close the leads you're given. You can't close shit. You are shit. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it, because you are going out. The leads are weak. The leads are weak. The fucking leads are weak. You're weak. Welcome to At The Brewies. My name is Rob. We've got Ben Legue, Andrew Bentz, and Thomas Prato, um, as well as our new producer, Chris Perzich. It's been a while since we recorded an episode. Almost two years. <laughs> yeah. So in is, addition to it being two years ago, there's also a lot of distance between all of us now emotionally. Yes, because <laughs> we're all self-quarantining, so we're all in different parts of Jersey City and I guess Long Island. Um, and Point Pleasant. Ben's only um, like 200 feet from me. Yeah, we're pretty close. <laughs> I can actually hear him outside of the microphone and through the window. Through the window. That's him. <laughs> That's him. Yeah. But yeah, so on the show we watch a movie, uh, or everyone watches a movie except for Andrew, nope. who only reads the Wikipedia page, um, and we all bring our different points of view to the conversation. I, for my part, work in post-production, in filmmaking, I went to film school. So this is Ben, I'm an engineer, so I know how things are constructed, just like movies. Mm-hmm. Just like <laughs> movies. <laughs> <laughs> but I really like films, I think they're great, a great way to tell stories, and they're a good medium. And uh, I watch a shit ton of movies, so that's why I'm here. My name's Andrew. I work in radio. I don't like movies at all. And um, I just like to read the Wikipedia page and give my opinion anyway. So everybody calls me Bowser, but my name is Tom. I'm a lawyer. I'm the fact checker, so I'll be uh, correcting people during the podcast, possibly, and uh, giving my opinion as well. Yeah, of course. So the movie we're doing is Glengarry Glen Ross, uh, which is a classic. It's a drama. 1992, uh, written by David Mamet, directed by James Foley. It's pretty famous for its ensemble cast, uh, which includes Jack Lemmon, Al Pacino, Alan Arkin, Ed Harris, Kevin Spacey, as well as a few others uh, in smaller roles. But it's known as one of the best ensemble movies. There's a lot of meat to, to dig into. So I don't, I'm excited to start talking about it. Well, besides um, the movies... Maybe so the, discuss, the name of the podcast uh, is At The Brewies, because we don't just like to watch movies. We also drink beer. Yes. Ben and Rob, and unfortunately not Bowser and Chris, pull out your, your bags of beer. And uh, maybe we'll start. You guys want to start with the can or the bottle? I don't bottle. Know. Bottle. Okay, that's yep. aggressive. Do I need let's a bo- start with bottle the bottle. Oh, is it? Well, hey, no, I just picked one. No, no, no. Can that's fine. No, we, we, we made the choice. We're here. Okay. I went to Cool Vines and spent too much money. So they pull out the bottle. Okay. And it's uh, an Allagash beer that I've never seen before. Yeah, Allagash uh, from Portland, Maine. If you're ever there, it's an awesome brewery tour. It's called Barrel and Bean. It's a Belgian triple aged in bourbon barrels and blended with cold brewed coffee. Oh, wow. Mm. What connection does this beer have to the movie? That's for everyone else to figure out. As some people may already know, it takes place in a bit of an office setting for a lot of it. And uh, in an office, you find 
quite a bit of coffee being drank. So my guess is it's the connection to coffee, the stab in the dark right here. Anyone else have any guesses? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty good. It's got to be it, and that in that famous scene where he says coffee for closers. Yeah, that was it. Nice. <laughs> Let's talk about something important. Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. <laughs> you think I'm fucking with you? I am not fucking with you. Andrew's connection to the BRO is very rich. I mean, and I don't, I don't I do want to believe overdo it. This is in bourbon barrels, <laughs> which I believe they drink bourbon when they're at the bar. They do. So that's I true. Did that connection that to, as well. To connect as well. It's pretty good. I usually don't like beers with brewed with coffee, but this isn't bad. So they it's added the coffee at the end. I think they didn't brew oh. it. Yeah, okay. It's not as thick. Yeah, but it is ten percent. Okay. It is ten percent. It doesn't Our really taste like it. Conversation's gonna get fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll get real. Fun. I'm very curious about the next beer. I will say I tried to tried to anticipate what beers would be coming up, and uh, the fact that the whole thing is filmed in New York City, I thought there might be some uh, choices. Oh, see, I didn't know that made in that direction. <laughs> Actually, the the original play takes place in Chicago, not New York. Really? Yeah. Oh. No, it doesn't. Does it? No. It says the story is set in Chicago. It was filmed in New York. That's the play. On that's Wikipedia. Play. No, that's, that's uh, not right, though. That's not right. I, it, it might be, actually. It they says work the in the offices of Premier Properties, she, Chicago. Sheepshead's Bay. Oh, no, Ben, you're right. They did say Sheepshead Bay. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're totally right. Oh, yeah. I pointed that out when we watched it. Remember, Ben? Yeah. Because the did. subway, I mean, that's the opening of the movie. You see the subway going by. But it might be actually set in Chicago because they do say he's going to Wisconsin. Yes. People don't say that I, in New York. But you can go to Wisconsin from New York. I ha- I can uh, prove that with ticket stubs. But to buy property? Let's, let's just say, to get that ironed out, it does take place in Chicago. But because we all recognize the scenery as New York, we probably all just assume that it was taking place in New York. Yep. It's supposed to take place in Chicago. They also show a shot of the Empire State Building, if I'm remembering correctly. It's the Chicago oh. State Building. Ah, of course. <laughs> so why did we pick the movie Lendary Len Ross? Because I really don't give a shit about it. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. Well, I, you will I picked by it the end of this podcast. <laughs> it's a fun movie to talk about because there's a lot going on, technically and thematically. It's one of my favorite movies, so I love talking about it anyway. Okay. Uh, it's all star cast, and they all did fantastically in this movie. But also being a play to a movie, I'm always interested to see how they adapt things like that. And having the the actual writer, Mamet, the fact that he got to write the screen or did write the screenplay for this movie um, <clears throat> makes it interesting. And the point I was going to bring up before is that the scene that I was aware of going into this movie, the always be closing, Alec Baldwin, brass balls, whatever is not in the original play, so... That is true. Because it really set a tone in the movie. It's interesting, um, maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, but um, a lot of people refer to the movie as a superior text. So, like, when they restage the play now, they transcribe the movie script into oh, like the original play script. <laughs> yeah. They do They do plays of Fight Club? No, but the the author has of Fight Club came out to say that he likes the movie better than the book. 
Probably made him a lot more money too. That's uh, true. Probably. We'll describe it briefly. I guess it's it's about an office uh, of salesmen selling property in we decided mm-hmm. in Chicago, even though they shot in New York. And it's sort of a chamber drama in a way. It's a there's more locations than the just one, so it's not quite a chamber drama. Um, about their lives. What's a chamber and, drama. Yeah, can you define that? It sounds like you're in the bathroom talking about dramas. <laughs> a chamber drama is a um, either a play or a movie that takes place in basically one location. Isn't that like, like a capsule movie? Or yeah, that's another name for it. Something. And there's Just another one. A confined space storyline. <laughs> yes, like uh, trap trap play. What's the the fly? The episode the fly from Breaking Bad, right? Oh, I thought you were going to talk about the movie. You mean like Jeff Goldblum in Breaking Bad? Maybe, maybe we'll save that for a future episode because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's a pretty good one. Um, yeah, so it just follows this group of uh, salesmen. That's basically it. That's the that's the uh, description. What are they buying or selling? Properties. Properties. Real estate. Like what kind of real estate? They're just shit real estate. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's sort matter. of like, it yeah, doesn't matter. Sort of real estate. It doesn't matter. Okay. They're okay. selling a lot of uh, real estate in Florida, even though they're in um, Metropolis or Gotham or New York or <laughs> Chicago. One of them. If you think about like the opening or the beginning of um, Wolf of Wall Street when he's working at that smaller firm and they're selling like the penny stocks. Okay. So some fun things about it. It's obviously very influential and people, it's parodied all the time, um, especially Alec Baldwin's scene. But Jack Lemmon's character uh, inspired Gil on The Simpsons. Which one is Gil? He's always, like, really worried all the time and stressed out. Feldman. Old Gil. Oh, this is bad. This is really bad. You work and you slave and you steal just enough for a sweet lick of that shiny brass ring. Don't I get a lick? Doesn't Gil get a lick? <laughs> there he is. <laughs> um, any other good information about this that we need to know? Because I've got one. They all call the death of a fucking salesman. Death of a fucking salesman. Death of <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't. Who, who was they when they called it that? When, all the um, actors when they were when they were, it. Yeah, when they were yes. shooting it, they all it called was it so vulgar. Yeah, <laughs> called it death it of is. a fucking salesman. That is a great way to describe it. I did not know that. I haven't um, watched it, and I probably won't. But the only reason I might is to watch Alec Baldwin sell. Yeah, words. it's Just it's watch worth the shape it. of his big mouth. A lot of actors study this movie pretty extensively because of the the technical um acting aspect but also it's shown to salesmen as well as a training tool on how to sell and how not to sell which is kind of fun i'm guessing yeah. that al pacino's character is, is more of an example of how to sell and maybe i'd feel like they don't have to sell. get as philosophical as ricky roma but it's based on David Mamet's experience working for a similar company before he, I guess he was writing plays. Um, and I didn't know that until Chris dug up the note, but um, I I think that's really cool or interesting because of how real all the characters feel that it's kind of, I don't know, it grounds it even more, I guess. Yeah. So definitely on that, and you've mentioned it before and people talk about, about this movie, the dialogue heaviness that, you could definitely see this as a as a play, and how quickly, or how interestingly, they translate the play into the movie with faster cuts, making the because I'm sure the actors are talking just as quickly as they are when the movie's all cut up. But uh, and I think Tom Bowser put uh, some notes in his 
thing about just when Ed Harris and um, or Moss is his character's name and is that a first George, name? Moss? Alan Arkin. And Alan, Moss, no, it's his Alan last Arkin. name. Yeah, mm-hmm. Alan Arkin plays George, and I don't know. Ed Harris plays Moss. Plays Moss. I don't know Moss's first name. And, uh, oh, the guy from The they, Rock. Ed I don't think they say it. Yeah, I don't Ed think Harris, they say the, it ma- the man in black, the the guy from the Truman Show. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, just how quickly they speak. And one thing I was when I was watching it last night, when I was thinking about how I, I was kind of predisposed to this idea that the dialogue is supposed to be really good, but it felt weird and like repetitive and alan arkin's character keeps like asking the same question over and over <laughs> i tried to think about it a little bit more and i was like oh wait a minute no this is like how people it's probably how i'm talking right now it's just like repeating yourself very <laughs> stilted and so in that way it it probably is more natural and yet as a movie because we're so used to how movies are played and how people speak in movies it came off as very it sometimes like not boring, but confusing. And like, what are the hell? What the hell are these guys getting at <laughs> while they're talking? <laughs> so the yeah. movie starts. We're introduced to all the characters, starting with Levine, who's played by Jack Lemmon. He's in a phone booth. Something's going on with his daughter. And we also see Ed Harris there playing Moss, trying to close on a sale. They're in a bar, um, which happens to be across the street from their office. So they're going back to the office for a big meeting. This big meeting is the big scene that everyone knows. You've got Alec Baldwin saying, always be closing. He's very crass. This whole movie is profanity-laden. And he's on fire, and probably not too different from what I assume Alec Baldwin is like in real life. So he's obviously very disparaging. He comes in. He's got the fancy car. He's got the nice watch. And all these other guys suck, and that's his opinion, and that's what he's saying to them. And he's trying to get them all to be better but essentially saying they're they're all terrible and if he could he'd fire them all so it starts starts by saying the first place salesman highest highest grossing salesman gets a cadillac second place gets a set of steak knives and third place is you're fired so this sets a tone of desperation of you know the stakes are very high for our four main characters oh like the knives um like the knives Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then we get a couple things going on. We see um, Ed Harris' character, Moss, and Alan Arkin's character, George. Moss and George kind of go out because George is, he doesn't know what's going on. This guy, he's, he's very confused. He's not sure what to do. And, uh, and Ed Harris is being <laughs> Ed Harris. He's, he's got a lot of opinions. He's, uh, he's talking up a lot of stuff. He, we, we're introduced to an unseen character, Graf, who's another real estate salesman who seems to be doing very well from Moss's perspective. Um, uh, during this time, we also see uh, Levine, the, the Gill-type character, played by Jack Lemmon, trying to make sales. He's clearly the oldest of all of these salesmen and seems to have lost his steam. And he he's striking out left and right. He makes a phone call that seems promising, but then ends up going to a, a, the house. And the, the guy clearly is like, screw this guy. You're just uh, every any other type of salesman. I, I don't want what you're what you're selling. Uh, we also see during this time Pacino in the bar across the street from their office making a sale in a very different way. He's, uh, as we mentioned a little bit before, he's talking to Jonathan Price's character. Uh, Linked, name? right? Link? Link. Yeah, James Link. Link. James Link. Link. Yeah. Um, and he's doing this very different kind of sale. He's, he's sort of pontificating about life and women and, and manhood and 
Um, he's getting his trust. He's not bringing up the. He's gaining yeah. his trust exactly, and and he's getting him drunk. They're drinking this whole time, so what we're going to see him end up making bourbon. a sale. Bourbon. Bourbon. That's right. Just like the bourbon in this bourbon barreled brewed cuff kit. Anyway, how's everybody um, like their beer so far? I think it's pretty delicious. Yeah, you know, I'm almost, I'm almost to the midpoint of the movie, so that maybe we'll do a beer check then. <laughs> so they're at the table. This is the pretty much the, the right dead center of the movie. You get Al Pacino's character, Ricky Roma, finally making this conversation into a sale with uh, Jonathan Price's character, James Link, and showing him the Glengarry um, Estates, Glengarry. Glengarry it's, yeah, Glengarry Farms, right? Is that what it is? Something like that? Glengarry Farms. Glengarry yeah. Farms. Glengarry and Farms. so he finally, you know, we as the audience finally see, okay, he's making this sale, and um, this is what he's been building up to. So also, during this time, uh, Ed Harris is talking up Alan Arkin. Oh, sorry, to... sorry. I want to just correct that. It's Glengarry Highlands and Glen Ross Farms. Oh, it's Glen Ross Farms. Yourself. Very good. Glen Ross Farms <laughs> is, is mentioned by several characters throughout the movie as being a past real estate Something they were trying to sell previously. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and that... That was successful, and then, yeah. That's what so they tried to talk to the, the the family that just likes to talk to salesmen, right? Yes, that, that no, would no, come up. Yeah, Glen Ross That's... Farms was previously very lucrative for the salesmen many years ago. Uh, and Glen Gary is what is the new, is the one, new one. The new those are the new leads. Those are the, those are the that leads. They're expecting to be lucrative, yeah. Those are the leads yeah. that um, Alec Baldwin brought in, and one character we haven't mentioned yet is the, the one played by Kevin Spacey, uh, John Williamson, who... Uh, is the office manager, uh, seemingly didn't really earn his job, some sort of family connection, got him into that position. Definitely not my favorite character in this little story. Um, he's kind of a dick, but we'll talk about him later. Anyway, he is protecting those leads from the other salesmen because they need to earn them. The leads were brought in by Alec Baldwin at the beginning of the movie. That's what is sort of the, a driving factor in all this. The whole storyline is they want these good leads because they keep being dealt all these shit leads over and over and over, sometimes the same leads. And so now these new leads are there. They're at their fingertips almost, but Kevin Spacey's character has got them locked up in the office and won't, won't let anyone have them until he's told otherwise. He's a bit of a stooge for, for other people throughout the whole thing, Ke- uh, Kevin Spacey's character. Um, and so... In order to get those leads, Ed Harris, instead of trying to earn them, he wants to, uh, or he begins alluding to Alan Arkin as they're driving around, going to the bar, uh, to steal these leads. And uh, again, it, it was a very funny conversation. You get, are we, are we talking about stealing these? Are we speaking about talking about? And the, the little sort of uh, dissecting the minutia of of language there was very. It felt very real and very like silly, and and it was fun. Um, and but then Ed Harris, in the not so chivalrous way, starts uh, almost guilting Alan Arkins, George, into becoming part of his, being a, an accomplice to his his burglary or his planned burglary. Um, so they really want these leads. They're talking about it, and then we see uh, again Al Pacino right at the end of what I believe I'm assuming is the first act of the play. Um, you see Al Pacino bring out these Glengarry properties, and then it cuts, and we cut to the next day where a robbery has taken place. They even took the phones. Al Pacino 
they can't give him the good leads because those are, have been stolen, but they have the old leads, and uh, Al Pacino is not very happy about that. Anyway, uh, everyone's now being questioned by the cops in sequence. Um, everyone's kind of coming back in, in what I believe to be a very specific order. Ed Harris is actually already talking to the cops when we uh, open the scene. Immediately, I think you're supposed to believe that he's the one who is part of this robbery, but it would be... It's either very suspicious that he's the first one in talking to the cops, trying to get ahead of the story, maybe. Him and Ellen Arkin are acting very guilty at that point. Too. Very guilty. But then again, Ellen I mean, Arkin seems sort of like half guilty or half aloof throughout the entire movie. He's just very nervous character. Also, at the, after this point, you get uh, Ricky Roma has you know made this sale with Jonathan the Price, or so he thinks. And you get... Jack Lemmon's character, Levine, comes in, and he is stoked. He's just made an $82,000 sale. Um, he's off of his cold streak. He's back in it. He's, he's killing it. They call him the machine, Levine. And he's sort of talking to Al Pacino's character, Ricky Roma, and Roma is, is he sees Levine as almost a mentor. And, like, this, this person who, who does it the old way, who's a pure salesman, and, and he, he wants to learn from him. Uh, of course, also at this time, when Ricky Roma goes in to talk to the police, the, it's revealed that Levine, in fact, was the one who stole the leads. Uh, she well, was caught be... in a small lie from uh, when he's talking to Kevin Spacey's character. Yeah, who's just, able to, to, just to go back a bit, I think you have to go back to the fact that Ricky Roma comes in and he's very concerned about his contract being filed with a bank. and. Yes. Kevin Spacey's character, Williamson, keeps saying, I filed it, I filed it yesterday, don't worry, I filed it yesterday. And then Levine mentions that the contract was not filed. How would Levine know that? Because he always files the contract, according to Williamson. And that's the exactly. lie that he catches him in. So he catches him in it, he calls him out, and Levine, who again has been on running this high of this big $82,000 sale completely switches back to old Levine, panicky, pleading with Williamson, you know, trying to bribe him, um, which he did in the first act uh, as well. Um, just, again, complete desperation, doing whatever he can. And then you get the, the end of the movie, uh, Ricky Roma. Um, yeah. you, you, you missed, before that they catch Levine in the lie, um, there's a scene where, uh, Link comes back and tries to renege on his oh, sale. Of course, and Shelley yes. Levine does a great job playing off of Roma and trying to close that sale and, and not get him to renege on the, on the deal. And and then Kevin Spacey's character Williamson screws it all up, mentions the fact that he did file the contract, which he didn't do, but he he says that he did, and that all happens before. And then Levine berates him for it. Roma berates him for it, and until he catches Levine the lie. So that just the yes, yes, yeah. no, that's important, and, and um, that kind of comes up a lot. People they're trying to make sales, but you know it happens in the first act. There, um, Levine gets on the phone with the wife, but then the wife talks to the husband, and then they go back on it, and then conversely or flip flopped in in the end. Jonathan Price's character says, signs the deal, but then his wife says, "No, you don't. We can't do this. I don't want you hanging out with this guy." So he's pulling out. And, uh, yeah, exactly as Bowser was saying, throughout all of this, Levine is kind of back to his old self, it seems. He's crushing it. He's playing off of Ricky Roma, trying to make this sale, focused on making the sale. And then um, Williamson comes out and kind of blows their whole cover. And then Levine slips up and, and blows his 
cover a little bit. And so it's revealed to us and Williamson that Levine is the one who stole the leads, but it's not revealed to Ricky Roma, who's in talking to the cops. He comes out, um, still trying, still worried about his contract, still wanting to go back to make sales, still admiring Levine, and you get kind of a little heartfelt, unknown moment. Ricky Roma's, I think, on the phone or talking to someone else, and Levine is clearly knows he's he's going down, but sort of seems to be hesitant to to say anything to Ricky Roma. I don't think he wants yeah, to ruin and, and, that and before admiration. This, before this whole thing happens, also, just, just to note that Williamson, or Williamson reveals to Levine that his sale is garbage, too. His $82,000 sale was to the Nyborgs, and apparently the Nyborgs are the crazy. Those are the crazy ones. Yeah, those are the crazy ones, yeah. ones who just like talking to They just to like to talk to salesmen, yeah. And uh, that's how the movie ends. We see Levine going into the um, office to go talk to the police, and the credits roll. Uh, the TLDR of that is uh, salesmen get pressure to make better sales given pretty crappy leads and they're trying to get better leads and the uh, one of the characters decides to steal those leads and gets caught in the act. And there, there is a point when Levine tries to um, Levine tries to buy the leads off Kevin Spacey off of Williams. That's Spacey. true. Yeah, when he's down, it is that's the night the night he he ends up stealing them right before he does. he's, yeah. he's kind of begging. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for that, Ben. That was pretty, uh, thorough. That uh, was exhausting. Recap. Do we want to, uh, jump into initial reactions then? So now we have a description yeah, down, we have do some facts. Yeah. Like I, I said this before, but you know, it's, it's one of my favorite movies. I, I, I love it. Cause it's just like, it's just pure drama in the sense that it's just like characters working off of each other and interacting with each other. And it's just about those relationships and those tensions and all of that. And it's executed perfectly uh and those part of the reason why that is is because those characters feel so real every single one of those just feels lived in like you know you look at someone like al pacino who you know is al pacino he has his own you know persona that he brings to the screen all the time but in this movie he feels like ricky roma not al pacino and of course jack lemon is just phenomenal i think it's his best movie Honestly. Better than grumpier old men? I was going to say, grumpier <laughs> old men's pretty solid. <laughs> Tuesdays with Maury, that's another good one with him. Is he Something alive? Like a, uh, Lemon, no, he, he passed away, actually, uh, I, I'd like to say, he, he passed away fairly young at 72, I think, in, in the 2001. Oh, wow. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. 2001? Is that when grumpier old men came out? No, grumpier old men came out in... 19... Whoa. Yeah, that was definitely 90s. 95. Tuesdays with with Maury, I would have guessed 2002. 1999. One of his last movies. Wow. There you go. Wow. Actually, his last movie. His last movie. All right, should we go around the room? Uh, Ben, give your initial thoughts. Um, The acting was phenomenal the whole time. I'm uh, thinking about how this would look as a a staged play. Um, and then conversely, what movies and, and the film medium is able to do uh, to either draw your attention to certain things, to make conversations cut up more quickly, and with such dialogue-heavy, fast talking, I thought this movie did that really, really well. Again, it's, it's, it's a different kind of movie, and yet you, you see echoes of it in a lot of newer movies. I definitely felt like mm-hmm. the big short took on some of the writing style of this. Um, yeah. Who's the guy who did West Wing? Uh, oh, Aaron Sorkin. It's very pre-Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin. Sorkin. Yeah. yeah. Felt felt like that kind of stuff. Sometimes the dialogue doesn't seem to be moving. The story 
So again, not like most big movies, which. Uh, but that's how plays are, right? I mean, that's a that's exactly. A play. Yeah, because it's it's yeah. all subtext, right? It's it's all about not not the words, but what's under the words. Mm-hmm. So I thought. I mean, Ben, you you should mention that you you've acted in a lot of plays, right? I mean, you. Yeah, you not play. this one. Yeah. No, um, not this one, but. But yes, I have some experience on stage. Um, I was in a play once. You were. Uh, I saw it. I played a politician. I had a red tie. Um, <laughs> did it go past your belt? Were you? No, it did not. I had a red tie though. I got hit by a car. I had ketchup in my nose. For like a bloody scene. Yeah. Well, no. No, he just had ketchup. Just smelled good. Just smelled good. Anyway, keep moving. Okay. Yeah, that was it. I thought it was beautifully shot. The story is is a fun one to kind of just sit on and, and chew on and think about and and listen to. It was a, a lot of listening. This could almost be a, a radio show. Yeah, that's true. There, there's some visual stuff I'm going to talk about later, but yeah, otherwise mm-hmm. I think I agree. Bowser? So I thought Jack Lemmon's character, Shelley Levine, was fantastic. The way he acted, his attitude, his, his attempts at selling seemed very much like a real character. Uh, Ed Harris and Alan Arkin, I mean, they were almost comic characters, right? I mean, they were yeah. they were a little ridiculous, kind of funny. I think I laughed a couple times just when they were talking and going back and forth. You didn't talk to him? No. What do you mean? Did I talk to him about this? Yeah. Are you just talking about this or were you just talking about it? Yeah, we're just speaking about it. Like, speaking about it as an idea. Yes. We're not actually talking about it. No. Talking about it as a... No. It's a robbery. It's a robbery? No. <laughs> well, hey. So all this, you didn't actually, you didn't actually call Graf. You didn't talk to him. Not actually, no. You didn't. No, not actually. Did you? What did I say? What did you say? I said not actually. Fuck you, care, George. We're just talking. We are. Yes. It is like a dark comedy, almost like it's. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly funny, but it, it, it's sort of throwing you off what's going to actually happen because you fully expect them to be the one that robbed the place but it ends up being Shelley Levine which makes it a little bit sadder you know yeah uh, if it was them it would just be like comedy right it would just be like <laughs> oh those ridiculous guys just are idiots and they can't get away with robbing this, this place <laughs> but when it's Shelley yeah. you know that he has the, he has all these issues and, and he, he makes it much more depressing much more real yeah, depressing, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, and and then, real uh, to that same point. Thing. That's another really interesting thing about it. it. Like no one is good in this movie. This right. is no. very like Game of Thrones. I don't know. Oh, like Tiger day. King. I, so <laughs> I haven't gotten to that part in my notes, but I do think there. I've watched the first three episodes of Tiger King, and there is some direct correlation between these two plot lines. Yeah, it kind of is actually. <laughs> And, and I think how, <laughs> yeah. and the other thing that obviously we all said was changed from the play was the uh, the scene with Alec Baldwin, which I think if you look at each of the characters in that scene, it sort of sets up each of their characterizations because Alan Arkin's character is just a complete, completely passive in that scene. He doesn't doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's just sitting there taking it from Baldwin. And Harris is a little bit resistive, but he gives in. When Baldwin confronts him, Levine yeah. gives him a, a, a cult, I think, like a sneer during the entire thing. Like, a, you know, he, he's looking at him like he's nothing, but he, he's also there. And then Roma's not there. Roma's actually making a sale to Jonathan Price during that scene. But it sort of sets up where all the characters are at. And 
No, I, I love it gives I, you good characterization. Like I love Ed Harris's character because he'll like yeah. he absolutely bowls over for everything, but he will just complain about it all behind everyone's yeah. back. Right? <laughs> like the whole like montage with him and Alan Arkin when they go when they're driving around and they go to the restaurant or the chicken place or whatever, you know? And he's just like complaining about all this shit and then like his opinion will change, but he'll complain about everything just as much. He just kind of mm-hmm. shifts under the pressure but pretends that he's like you know, he's not going to take anything, but <laughs> he takes it all. Yeah. Yeah, the whole time. And I wish I could exactly. remember some of the lines, but, like, Ed Harris will say something, and Alan Arkin will just repeat it in the question. Ed Harris will yeah. say it again, and then he'll repeat <laughs> yeah. it in the question again. And then he'll be like, okay, yep, this is my opinion now. Sort of. Maybe. I don't know. Andrew, do you have any initial reactions to the Wikipedia page? Is, how, how, how well formatted is the Wikipedia page? Um, it's not bad. It's the- not good either. It's... <laughs> It's kind of hard to follow the story on the Wikipedia page, because it kind of breaks it all out into different characters and stories. Did you read the okay. film and the play Wikipedia page, or just the film? No, just the film. Oh, shit. Oh, Oops. <laughs> um, I do really like the movie poster. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. It looks like a car yeah. crash movie. Yeah, it's it's really it's crazy. pretty weird. Also, looks very eighties, yeah, like early nineties ish. When did yeah. this movie come out? 92. Oh, yeah, that's what I, that's what I guessed. Yeah, because it's the, it's the broken window, right, of the, of yeah, Kevin like, Spacey's office. Yeah, but with a weird silhouette and then, like, yeah. like what? a bunch of, like, glamour shots of all of them. That's yeah, not but what there's, there's another poster, rope. though, that sounds tight like what rope. Ben's looking at. Yeah, where he's on a tightrope. Yeah, and it's in German. <laughs> no, that's probably the so German it was actually, one. It was actually financed. Oh, that's the German one. They had a hard time getting the movie financed. Like, it wasn't, like, super sexy content. They tried to get a bunch of um, American cable companies to finance it um, because they couldn't get studios to. And they said no because of the language. Mm. Um, Obviously, because they can't show it on TV. So they ended up getting, like, a bunch of German TV networks and Austrian theaters and stuff to finance it. So, yeah, anyway, the point is you'll see a lot of German marketing for the movie is my point. Interesting. Um, They describe it as a story for everyone who works for a living. Yes. But anyways, it was so, a good Wikipedia page. Not the best. I've seen better from movies. Uh, also kind of a hard movie to follow in just text, which is kind of stupid. But Just reading the page, do you have a favorite character? Uh, mm, that's a great question. I like Alec Baldwin the most, but just because I always think about 30 Rock. Yeah, he's not even like a real character. He's not like a fleshed out character in the movie. He just sets up the other character. I know. He's I only, yeah, he's only one scene. He's nice and he's simple. I don't, I don't like complication. I don't like very people very that simple. change. It's just a fucking movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but actually, how that's many people in this movie change. I think most of them are pretty stagnant in a lot of their core character traits. Yeah. Sounds like you learn more about them now. Well, it's yes, kind of yeah. letting them, letting their characters follow through with the situation right you, you know like a good baseball swing <laughs> yeah um mamet just kind of like throws these these conflicts at them and then lets the characters sort of handle them as they do these will be real feeling characters kind of do their thing do you want to talk about what we liked and disliked about the movie you guys want to do a quick beer check-in first yes yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. so yeah. i, I finished my beer You'd, oh, oh man! Geez. Yeah, it was too much. I've got only halfway through. Yeah, I've it's really good, but I, it's gone now. Are you gonna get a second one? Um, I do have another one, just I have yours, but I don't think I can drink two ten percent beers in a row. <laughs> I, to Rob's original point, it's better than the regular like coffee brewed. 
beers because it's not too much coffee. Yeah. But the bourbon barrel aging is almost, and this is weird because I do enjoy bourbon, is almost too much to have more than one of these. Yeah, no, I wouldn't want yeah. too much flavor for my simple palate. It's pretty light. Not light, but it's like a... Well, for, yeah, for so much beers, yeah. Like, it sounds like something that should be super, super, like, just smack you in the face with all these flavors. Mm-hmm. And it more just, like, kind of dips and dives around them. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. I, I do like the um, label design, though. Nice and simple. Good earth tones. Yeah, Alagash is super earth tony. <laughs> Would you recommend it? Um, not for the price. How much was mm. it? It was $20 for a four-pack. Four yeah. Ooh, that's a lot. It was hot. Yeah. But it looked Four like I wanted pack. to try it, and I figured I could make everybody else pay for it in this process. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm glad I tried it. It's a good it. bottle, right, Ben? It's Yeah. Testing the uh, integrity here. Yeah, Ben, as, a, as an breaking. engineer, as an engineer, how do you, <laughs> you rate the, the bottle? Well, you know, the neck is shorter than uh, I would like it, but um, the bottle cap was very well secured. So, four out of four stars. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good, because I give it three and a half out of three and a half stars. <laughs> are we going to open the next beer? Or are we gonna I'll, I'll wait till you guys are ready, so I'll, I'll give yeah. it another ten minutes, and then we'll open the next beer. Okay. Okay, that so was good. Let's talk about... Uh... Lights and dislikes? I really like the performances uh, and the writing, and I, you know, I enjoy like that sort of contained style narrative, chamber drama, bottle episode, whatever. There's always fun... Capsule movie. Capsule movie. Um, they're always fun, especially when they're done really, really well. Um, there's something way more engaging about it because, like, all the environment kind of goes away, where you're just kind of focusing on the drama between the characters and the characters themselves. But at the same time, the environment that they're in becomes its own character. Does anyone um, have any uh, favorite capsule movies besides this one? Panic Room. Uh, Panic Room. Panic Room. Is that really a capsule one. movie? They're I think so. In a Panic Room. I'm a big fan of All Is Lost. With Robert Redford. I haven't seen that. Um, I highly recommend it. He's like on a sailboat in the Indian Ocean. Oh, what about that movie with the shark? Open Water. Open Water. I never saw that one. There was a sequel. They all die in the end and there's a sequel. Spoiler alert. So, just to be clear, are capsule movies movies that all take place what? In one place? They're they're movies you have to watch after taking a special type of capsule. <laughs> like the Matrix, <laughs> like the Matrix, uh, but yeah, Bowser. Either one location or very, very, very few locations. So a lot of them are going to be plays. I mean, just by nature, like not right, all of them, but many of them probably would be. Like, so like or at least I recently watched the Room, Room, like Apollo Thirteen. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Which all Ooh. takes place like in their house or yeah, in, in their, the front yard, in their, like yeah. in their dining or in their living room and dining room. Yeah, that's in a great their, movie. Yeah. Which was a great movie, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. also. But it was also another play movie, so that's why I just yep. uh, yeah. And there's of course there's there's the all time great ensemble capsule movie Twelve Angry Men. Twelve Angry Men. Yeah. Oh, I right. saw that. I was also, also recently on a jury. Oh, that's right. How did yeah. that compare to Twelve, 12 Angry, Angry Men? Men. <laughs> um, <laughs> you didn't deliberate. The lawyers were terrible, so it didn't matter. Didn't, <laughs> no, but in the, in the film you don't you only see the deliberation and you yeah I didn't get, yeah, I didn't get to deliberate. You get to mm. But apparently the entire deliberation mm. took two minutes, and then they just sat there, and then they went out anyway. Oh. Why they sit there? I, I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't, they I didn't should make a sequel to Twelve Angry Men. Twelve bored individuals. Well, it was fourteen bored individuals, and then they made me not deliberate as I was an alternate. <laughs> but you don't find out until the end. 
14 people wasting tax dollars maybe oh yeah well they paid me 95 dollars for all my time oh yeah couldn't get you triple digits you'll get there next time one day (laughs) was there anything anyone didn't like about this movie i mean i think ben kind of mentioned this they repeat a lot which i guess is true to the way people talk but they said the word leads a lot and that would really get to me i'm glad i didn't watch the movie yeah like a lot like a lot leads Mm -hmm. lead yeah i don't like that too many vowels especially because you never know what the leads are it's it's very Ah, unconventional as far as a movie in terms of setting so much up without giving a reveal which i know a lot of movies do now but it makes you it gives you this sense of uncomfortability throughout the movie is that a word um uncomfortableness discomfort discomfort (laughs) <laughs> no 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 it wasn't discomfort it was uncomfort like, what didn't you like about the movie no the movie well, i'll tell you that uh, i don't like that it's supposed to be set in chicago and they did far too much to blatantly show new york city in my opinion it's true again we're a little biased being within the new york city area but the subway was clearly different and when they showed the shot of the city which was a good transition shot which is rare in this movie as well as you know like a play doesn't have these so that was another difference between how how you can translate a play into a movie and set scenes with a single image as opposed to requiring a lot of dialogue or complicated setting yeah that's interesting actually one of the reviews that i was reading from the new york times praised al pacino's chicago accent they said it was very subtle and a very good chicago accent which is interesting because I didn't hear anything like that. But yeah, I'm not from Chicago. His, his, so I don't his know. agent paid off someone at the New York Times. There is no <laughs> Chicago accent. Anyway, uh, he sounded just like Al Pacino. <laughs> <laughs> I love his and, character in this movie. Oh, I love it. Yeah, very. It's amazing. so good. That was very Al also, Pacino in a lot of it. The yeah. movie didn't make money either. It uh, no, it was not successful at the box office. It had yeah. a budget of I think 12 million, and it only made back. About ten million. Wow! Incredibly surprised by that because it had already, I assume it had already been a well-regarded play, and obviously all of the actors in it are A-list actors. Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about it, sort of like that era. There's a lot of like top-notch dramas that came out around then, right? You had Shawshank Redemption, you had Forrest Gump, you had Unforgiven, you had Schindler's List. They all came out around the same time, ninety-two, ninety-three. So. I don't know, maybe it just kind of got lost. And because the budget was so small, $12 million, they might not have been able to advertise it against all the other big ones. I mean, the out. movie poster's terrible. Like, like their sales? <laughs> That's true. Their, their like, sales weren't sales? very good? Their leads? Their sales, sales <laughs> movie? Weird. Well, yeah. you know, Jack Lemmon said, it's got no women, it's got no sex, it's got no violence, yeah. it's got no special effects. Yep. So even if it is a Pulitzer Prize-winning play, it's got nothing that people are interested in, right? I mean, that is a that's fantastic what, yeah, observation. Yeah, that's true. It's only about real people. Well, no one wants to know yeah. about real people. You know, when Al Pacino's doing the sale, the unconventional sale to Jonathan Price, mm. honestly, I would have hated that. I would have hated sitting next to a guy who's clearly about to sell me something. I hate salespeople. Yeah, so but you're not, you're not you're not Jonathan Price, didn't know. though. Right. Yeah. I know. Jonathan Price was very depressed at the time or whatever he clearly was drinking alone at a bar and not a bar that, that the bar at a chinese restaurant the bar yeah, at a chinese even, restaurant. even worse even better i don't know um <laughs> but once that sale came out i guess that's my point i would have been like fuck you dude 
get the fuck. No, but you don't you don't know that well, because he's a character that's looking for somebody to talk to. It was kind of great because he like walked him into this place where like oh, we're all gonna die, nothing matters. So he might as well just buy it. Look, I got this thing. I don't know what this is. You should just buy it. Just buy it. Just buy it. Why? It and the way matter. he says it, he's like, who cares? You know, this is this is garbage. You know, nobody cares about this. But, you know, I have it. So if you want yeah. yeah. There's no present. He had that line. There's no present. <laughs> he was really, he was like stoned. He almost was, yeah. was stoned. He was like, there's, you know, there's only future past. No present, man. Was, yeah. <laughs> weird. Yeah. Whereas Jack Lemmon's character, when he's making the sale, he's like, You've won an award or something, and, and oh, I have yeah. this award to give you, and it's a it's opportunity to buy real estate. Yeah, and it's like, like it, it's it big, puts them in a position like, where it's like, you got to act now because you've got selected for this special thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. and your special kind of like already brings you into like you're already in it, you know, when he starts talking right. to you. Um, and that was interesting that those two characters, or that the, the one character who's clearly doing a perhaps quote-unquote new style of sales pitch where you take the time to really know the person or let the person know your ideological views and then put the sale on them as opposed to Levine, who's doing these old sale tactics, you're special, you're special. Yeah. I think yep. Levine briefly does try to do something like that because he does, when he walks into the guy's house, he grabs a fishing rod, he's like, oh, you fish it, and then he does like the, the oh, thing yeah. the fishing rod, he's like, oh, yeah, and you got, these, you got the kids, he picks up the stuffed toy, and... So he like tries to connect, but the guy is completely unreceptive to it. I think too. Right, right, right. Because he can kind of totally yeah. wise to it, and you can see Jack Lemmon kind of like realizing that he is wise to it, and and seeing his whole world kind of fall apart because he sort of yeah. built his world on his ability to do that, and it just is kind of crumbling around him. Um, oh yeah, and you see that yeah. when he interacts with Kevin Spacey, both in the first yeah. part and the last part, just yeah. that immediate shift of like when he sees he loses power. Or any kind of pole or standing, and it's just a pleading sack of shit. <laughs> it's uh, it's very good acting and really just pitiful to watch. I mean, in, in like a good way, in a really well well done way. <laughs> yeah, I agree. The constant rain in the first act of the movie is also like almost oppressive. It's it raining. Like. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Most of, so this is actually this is a is fun it thunder. That's a really good point. Uh, there might I forget if it's a thunderstorm, but it's definitely no. a lot of rain. But no, it's this just is, rain coming straight it's like down. Thick rain. Yeah, down. okay. It's cats like and that dogs. Rain where you know that you need milk. You're gonna you get need milk? milk. Is that you said, Ben? Yeah, they use milk. Don't they use to milk make it in thicker movies to make it so you can see that? The rain oh, because they're in Chicago and they have all those cows. That's right. Yeah, they they're Chicago. really you know downtown Chicago is mostly cows. <laughs> So the uh, as Bowser mentioned, the, the budget was only twelve million dollars, which again this is nineteen ninety two twelve million. Buys so a lot of milk. In probably 92. thirty thirty five today, something like that. Most of their budget went to the rain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> really? So yeah. it was clearly a very important point. But the part I'm remembering is when Levine is like begging Williamson, Kevin Spacey's character, to give him the leads. It goes into a different level when he steps outside and he's like getting into yep. his car and stuff. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah, it's that's a really good point, Bowser. That that rain brings this sort of depressive, desperate. Uh, yeah, you know, he's all wet. He's all washed up. And when he yeah. walks into the house, and he's just soaked, and he's yeah, yeah. Uh, Twelve million dollars in nineteen ninety two is twenty two million dollars today. Uh, okay, not that much. Not a big budget. No. What does rain cost? You're renting the machines. The pumps. Um, is it like a different machine? How do they make rain? They have these towers that are specifically made to make movie rain. They're up like 
uh, the big condors, like the big, um, uh, like like a scissor lift kind uh-huh. of thing, or a telescoping arm, and they're like giant sprinklers on the top of those, and they just pour hmm. water down. Do they capture the water at the end, or is it just wasted? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know what they do. To flush all the toilets. Oh, gray water. It's a gray water system. It's a gray water system. (laughs) Gray rain. Gray rain, yeah. Yeah. The language is Um, very interesting. So we already talked about how it's repetitive as far as the language, but the profanity is, I mean, again, that's another part of Alec Baldwin's character, Blake. Every time anybody says Alec Baldwin or Al Pacino, I have to sit there and wait. And like on bated breath, if it's going to be Al Pacino or Alec Baldwin, they are very different. <laughs> Every time I'm like, oh, which one? They are very different people. Which Al? They're different shapes, um, that's for sure. But it, and there, and everyone is profane as far as their language in this movie. But I think the intensity at which Alec Baldwin oh, <laughs> portrays that way of speaking is so much more harsh that that is another way that he sets a certain type of tone for the rest of the movie. He uses profanity that the others do not. Mm. The C word. Closing. The F-A word. It's very strong. And not only, it, it's not in somewhat of a, sometimes people are swearing in this movie in more of a flippant manner. That That is very strong and directed. Blake as simple as the character is, has a strong hatred for what he perceives as weakness. Um, and that comes out absolutely in the level of profanity he uses in speaking. If you look at it objectively, the language is probably over the top, right? If we're talking about the way people actually talk. But I think it's one of those things where like, if you want to make something feel realistic that's not realistic, you have to go a little over the top in order to make it feel more real, Right. So I think the fact that these guys are just kind of, like Ben, you said, swearing flippantly, it makes them feel like real people because they don't give a shit. They're just going right. to talk. And like for most people, that's like way over the top. That's more swearing than most people do in a normal conversation. But because they're doing it so casually, it makes them feel more real, ultimately. This, yes. was, uh, this movie was rated R based only on the language. Are for yeah. real estate. There's no, there's no violence. <laughs> there's no there's violence. No, there's, no there's no tits. There's no. Sexual, yeah. no it's not movie. a hot movie. No. It's not a hot movie. Yeah, you, at no point does it feel like warm. Yeah, if we want to talk about color, it is very blue. There's a lot of blue in the movie. It's mm. blue and beige. Other than well, there's a the red. Chinese restaurant. Yes. Oh, is exactly. it red? Especially when they were in the phone booth. That was something that stood out to me when. Yeah, Veen is on the phone, sitting down in the re- in the blue, and Harris is standing up in the red. Mm-hmm. And you kind of see both of them at the same time, and you get this immediate imagery, this immediate visual of the differences of these two characters. More of a firebrand versus more of a, I don't want to say pushover, but you know, sad sack. Eleanor, yeah, there you go, sad sack, <laughs> sad sack. Hard so I'd bag. say it's probably time to, to crack into the next beer, you guys. That sounds good. Just uh, this this one, one comes in a can. It's a tall oh. can. McKellar's Beer Geek Breakfast, which is an imperial stout brewed with coffee. Ah, more coffee. And fun fact, the guy Coffee's from... Closers. Exactly. The guy from, from McKellar, his brother or twin, I forget. No, must be his twin. They got into a fight, and now the other twin is Evil Twin Brewing. Oh. So that's where that comes what? from. Yeah, and now they both ha- have breweries in New York City. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. That's it's not just wow. a catchy name. So this is uh, their imperial stout. It's supposed to be very good. 
So I'm finding this beer, maybe I needed a palate cleanser between the two, but I'm finding this relatively similar. Obviously, they are both mm-hmm. coffee brews, but this one does have a little bit more of that fullness that other coffee beers Well, it's got have. that stouty bite. Yeah, that, that's, that's yeah. what it is. It's that stout. This is more based in the bitterness of coffee than like all the acidity and all the actual flavors you're getting from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could find myself looking at the label a lot longer. It's the label's pretty cool. Yeah. Fun. And I love the story behind it that you brought up of the evil twin brewing being the yeah. the twin of the other brewery. If I'd thought ahead, I would have found a, a coffee evil twin beer, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah that would, they Save that for when we do, um, what was that shitty movie with Will Smith where he's got a twin? Oh, Gemini Man? Yeah. yeah. Save yeah. it for when we do We're going to do that? No, we're not going to, because I don't, don't want to watch it. <laughs> so we're going to watch that movie. We're going to do twins with Arnold's, we'll do with, twins. Uh, yes, we should, we should do twins, I agree. But everybody seems to like their beer. This is on the positive side. Yeah, I don't love mm-hmm. it though. Um, yeah, I mean, it's fine. This was another I'm not, $20 four pack. I'm not a big coffee, Jeez. I know, right? beer I individual. Sorry, Maybe guys. I'm not a closer. Yeah, I'm more it's, not, it's not for you. I like to open doors, <laughs> not closer. Mm. I just, just open them. a relationship. Just hold them wherever they are. <laughs> no, I had a I had a friend, or I, it's he's still my friend, but it, it, he had a job in high school at a at a used car dealership, and their oh, motto yeah. was, "Here, we don't close a deal; we open a relationship." Oh, um, that's terrible! <laughs> I'm gonna say that to the next woman I hit on. See see how hard I get smacked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um. But yeah, I mean, I think I agree with what Ben's saying about the beer. It's similar to the other one, but obviously it's a stout. The other one was better. The other one was better. It was better. Um, Definitely. The complexities that the other one had, this one, those just feel like compressed. This one's smacking you in the face. The beer Geek Breakfast by... Uh, it's got a great label. McKellar, McKellar Brewing. Yeah. And this is brewed with coffee. The other one said it had cold brew added. Added afterwards. So yeah. Okay. that's the difference, I think. Interesting. The label's really good, though. It's beautiful. In case anyone is listening at a much later date, we are in the middle of coronavirus times. Which makes this whole... Actually, there's a, there's a connection here with the, the capsule episode or the bottle... Mm, it's true. Show. They're all very... <laughs> the bottle encapsulated. Show. We're all in our own bottles. Encapsulated. We're all in our own little yep. bottles. How would this movie have been... Or this story be different if people had been able to... <laughs> Video chat with each other. Yeah, let's let's hold on. Let's yeah, that's our next project, Ben. We we reimagine Glenn Glarick and Ross over Zoom. Uh, People sell people sell real estate and over Zillow as the real estate agency. (laughs) Zen Zeri Zen Ross. (laughs) So yeah, so anyway, we I mean we talked a lot about what we liked and what we disliked you know, our initial reaction. So maybe we should sort of start to dive into the, the meat of it and, and go over some of the technical stuff, which this is a very technical movie in the, in terms of the way it's acted and written. A lot of robots. Uh, compared to Space Jam? <laughs> yeah, yes. And they are really going for the same some breathing target room. audience. and uh... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, what I mean by technical, it's, it being a technical movie is in the execution and um, like, okay, let's take the acting, for example. It's some of the best acting you'll see. The way all the characters, all the actors work off of each other and interact together is just like top-notch academic acting. You know, you could use this as a class, 
So it sort of like advances that art in a way and exemplifies that art that a lot of movies really don't. And it's just, it's a great showcase for what these people can do. Yeah, no, no question. And something as someone who has been in plays, when I watch a play or, or, or even a movie and I think about what the people read, so they read it off a page at first, right? They didn't have any other context. That's what's most telling for me to see how they took certain lines. I, again, I wish I had written down some examples for this. The, the one where um, Ed Harris, it's, it's in the uh, second half, and Ed Harris is, and Al Pacino, so Moss and Roma are starting to kind of call each other out. So both characters mm. are definitely some of the more hot-headed of the four salesmen. Roma clearly having a much more natural uh, sort of knack for salesmanship, it seems, by his numbers. Um, and clearly they're starting to size each other up in this scene. Anyway, there's one moment when Ed Harris is a simple line. It was something just like, you know, I never really liked you, but it came out kind of out of the blue. Like someone, like these people who are very guarded in a lot of ways about making sure they're, they're controlling the narrative of who they're selling to. And mm -hmm. even when Ed Harris, or when Moss is trying to sell to George this idea of stealing, and if even if you listen to me, you're on board, you're or you're you're an accomplice to this. Like right, it's like he's constantly trying to yeah. sell, constantly trying to hide their sort of ulterior motive. Yeah, and well, the way he Ma presented that one line of, you know what, I never really liked you seems so. I don't think I think what he says honest. is, um, what Roma is trying to tell Moss about how great Levine is, how great the yes. machine, Shelley machine. And what Moff says is, "Fuck the machine," and he yeah. he he says that, line. and it's like, "What did what did Shelley do to him?" You know, it's not yeah, and he basically and says, "Fuck what you just came say, out so know? honest." And I can imagine yeah. someone reading the line, this as simple as "I don't like you" or whatever. I don't remember the exact words. It was such a well, shift says, from like, the oh, rest. Just because you're the top name on the board, the rules don't apply to you. Yeah, it's 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 one of those scenes where where Ed Harris sort of you know blows his steam a little bit. At everybody, he's kind of spouting all this bullshit, but there's there's yeah. there's some subtext there where you sort of understand where he's upset. But he's like, he's he's, you know, building this big, all this smoke for not a lot of fire because right. he's he's still gonna just kind of roll over and do, whatever, to survive. But he pretends like he has this big persona. Well, um, yeah, and he doesn't go through with it, right? He doesn't exactly. steal it. He exactly. doesn't convince anyone to steal it. The first act, he's building up a whole persona. And that's another, actually, that's another great line, is when he talks about uh, this idea of the, you're in it for the working man, or what, a, I don't remember, I should really write down these specific lines. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he's essentially calling out Roma who by saying something like, Oh, who the fuck do you think you are? You're you're a one of the a man of the people or something like that. Even though that's literally what he's trying, or that's the ploy he tries to use to pitch to George when they're in the car. Hey sure. man, we're getting screwed. We're getting screwed by the man. We're getting screwed by Mitch and Murray. We're getting screwed by Kevin Spacey. The way they took on those lines, things that when you read them, you know your brain puts its own emphasis on different things. Whether or not it's through the course of filming, they got multiple takes and were able to pick the best take, which is another reason why mm -hmm. I think it's it's really interesting to have a play go to a movie because you have that mm -hmm. ability to kind of pick the best take. 
from each individual, uh, making it even better. But on top of that, you have actors who are very interpretive with the text that they are given and able to bring a realism and like a, an attitude to each of those lines that personally, I, trying to think of how I would read it, would have never thought of. We were talking about like the way these, these characters just feel real. Um, and I guess there's, there's um, it's sort of Mammoth's style, right? Which is, I think, known as, as Mammoth speak sort of like Sorkinisms, but Mammoth's a little bit harsher than Sorkin, I think. But it's still same, the same kind of idea where there's a lot of like words flying around, but it's not about the words. It's about what's underneath. And because people are talking so much, you can see how they interact and you can get the subtext from that and let the words kind of pass into the background a little bit, which is so fascinating to watch, both like from a script perspective, like how it's written and how that was all put together, but also from an acting perspective like watching the actors do that because they know the actors know the subtext they know what they're doing and and see them tackle all of those words and what they're actually trying to say at the same time is really amazing and and this whole movie is about about power and purpose right there's like the microcosm like we talked a lot about between Alan Arkin and Ed Harris in like the dynamic of power. But one of the most powerful scenes for me that illustrates that is at the end of the movie with Jack Lemmon and Kevin Spacey, where Kevin Spacey sort of starts to realize that Jack Lemmon was the one who stole the leads, where it starts with Jack Lemmon really like riding into Kevin Spacey. You know, oh, he's like, oh, like, you're a fucking loser. Nothing. You don't know what the mm-hmm. fuck you're doing. You know, you're a fucking idiot. And then... He, like, lets that one little thing slip, and Kevin Spacey's like, wait. And he shifts the entire power dynamic in his favor. You just watch it happen, and it just happens so naturally. And just with the way there's, you know, what they're saying and the way they sort of, like, Jack Lemmon sort of subtly tweaks his demeanor, and Kevin Spacey subtly tweaks his, and it kind of, like he said, it ultimately transitions into Jack, into Jack Lemmon being much more pleading. By God, I just closed 82 grand. Are you out of your fucking mind? I'm back. This is just the beginning. Just the beginning? Where have you been, Shelley? Bruce and Harriet Nyborg. You want to see the memos? They're nuts. They used to call in every week. When I was with Webb, we were selling Arizona. They're nuts. Did you see how they were living? How can you delude yourself? I got their check. Yeah, well, forget it. Frame it. It's worthless. The check is no good. Hey, you want to stick around? I'll pull the memo. I'm busy Wait now. Wait a minute. The check is no good. They're, they're nuts. You want to call the bank, Shelley? I called them. I called them four months ago when we first got the lead. The people are insane. They just like talking to salesmen. Oh. Don't. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's no like big like drop, you know, reveal no. moment. It just kind of it's very subtle. Be. It's such a 180, and yet through yeah. the course of it. So I guess to your point, that's the technical prowess that this movie really exemplifies. Given all of that, like you know the 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 acting and the writing being so amazing and so well executed, I think it's hilarious that the director did not much before this and like. Not much after this. I Did think... the director have to do anything for this movie, though? I mean, that's a good point. He just kind of had a bunch of good people in a room and like said, go. That's true. I mean, <laughs> I think like... so. I think where the director makes decisions is where to draw focus on 
certain parts of a scene. So yeah, while you're in, a, and that's sure. again another part that's interesting when you try and translate a play to a movie because a movie you can you get to dictate where people's focus goes. Things like Levine in a phone booth while it's raining, you can do that on stage, but whether or not they did do that as a quick cut between Ed Harris that and wasn't done Arkin in, the in a bar. That I'm was done, that was one of the scenes that wasn't done in the play. A right? bar? There you go. The, so the phone booth go. call from the daughter. Oh. Yeah. Those types of things are like the quick cuts between the bar scene and Levine, wherever he was, either in the phone booth or at the house trying to make the sale or back at the yeah, yeah, yeah. teaching the count phone. too. Uh, anyway, yeah, I mean that, that, that's where I think the director has the ability to do that. Whether or not yeah. this director did that, my thought was, you know, to Andrew's point, given all the stuff that's coming into this, without the you know outside of the director with David Mamet as the writer and all of the actors, um, you know, David Mamet added all of those scenes for the screenplay and you look at the director's like other projects and like the last few things he'd done were like the 50 shades movies the yeah the two last ones but it, oh, like, you know, like, it, like the easter one 50 shades of easter <laughs> 50 shades 50 of easter shades more or something 50 shades, closer. 50 shades. 50 shades of christmas 50, um, he also directed he also 51 directed, shades lost in new york We've all seen it. <laughs> he also directed a lot of episodes of House of Cards. Yes, I was going to get to that. So, like you know, Spacey it's, it's guy now. Kevin Spacey. Yeah. 50 Shades, <laughs> Kevin Spacey. So it's like, you know, it's a question of, of, of a function of what's coming in. Not necessarily what he brings in, but what's already there. You know, we look at like Alien, right, that we talked about, or, or Baby Driver, where those are movies where the director really drew. I mean. The Baby Drove. Come on. <laughs> Really the baby drove did a lot drive, of the content. But, but I mean, he had tried, he'd been thinking about and trying to make that movie for like 15 years or so. Yeah, I mean, again, I, Edgar Rice, also, or Edgar Rice, geez, Edgar Wright um, wrote Baby Driver, but Ridley Scott didn't write Alien. But he helped drive a lot of the thematics and a lot of the yeah, content. Sure. Um, I think when you have a play with, which is mostly based on dialogue and the actors are all really good, the director isn't quite as important I mean, like Fifty Shades Freed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like he's kind of bound to whatever shades. he needs to do. Oh, Tokyo he's bound. Hughes. <laughs> His hands are you know, tied in the, a little bit. In the play, there are only two scenes. The first act is in the Chinese restaurant, and the second act is in the real estate office after the burglary is discovered. So, and actually, this is so something with, that I with found the Alec Baldwin part removed. Do they still start with them at the bar, like on the phone in the bathroom, or wherever yeah, no, no. they so have the to first, be? The first act of the Chinese office is Shelley trying to the Chinese John office, to, the Chinese restaurant. Shelley <laughs> trying to convince uh, Williamson to sell him the lead to Dave Moss and George Arnau in that same Chinese restaurant, uh, talking to each other, doing their whole thing, and Ricky oh, Roma with James Link in that Chinese restaurant. The first act is all there. So you don't even get the initial part of. Ed Harris and Levine on the phone and in the bathroom and Kevin Spacey, you jump right, right into Levine trying to get Williamson yeah. to give him the, the good lead. And they're all That's separate and they all come together in act two in the real estate office. Wow. Interesting. You know, like yeah. I said, when you do these like capsule or chamber dramas or whatever, the set that they're in starts to feel like its own character. The office is so perfect for this and it like feels 
so entwined with the text and the story that it feels like it had to be a set, right? It's an actual office that they shot on location. Oh. In New York. In New York. But not Chicago. In not Chicago. Bay. Chief said Bay, yeah. So they weren't they weren't ever in Scranton? <laughs> no. But now let me ask you this, how many of y'all have worked in an office in any way similar to that office? I guess I haven't. I mean I've I been at work when it rains. But that's all I know about this office. I haven't seen the movie. Well I would say <laughs> so if you I, have I... an office that has like any remnant layout construction from the eighties, <laughs> nineties, which yeah. That's what it looked like. like several radio offices I've uh, yeah, several like offices I've, I've worked at to have that down to like what told me it was real was the the little filing cabinet areas underneath the windowsills in between yeah. the radiators. I was like, mm. that's some real shit. There's no way a set designer is going to think about that. In, in my that's opinion. A good point. That's a good point. Unless, you know, they, they spend a lot of time studying it, which they wouldn't right. have given the budget and, like, why. There'd be no need to. That exactly. Other... Why? Yeah. There'd be no need to. And how yeah, not... everything is pretty cluttered. There's files everywhere, right? I mean, on everybody's yeah. desks, on the sides. Like, that's what offices look like. They're probably just like, this looks great. Just leave it there. Just leave it, yeah. But then they aren't allowed to touch certain things, or? Usually you operate with, with what's called hot set, which means... Don't touch anything. Don't move anything. Because if you move something and don't tell anybody, you cut the camera to another angle. Suddenly, that water bottle is on the other side of the desk, mm. and that's where you know everyone gets their their things for the goof section of IMDb. Right. Um, so, as it, someone that that works in a place that has been used in a lot of weird like films like that, mm-hmm. they make you falsify everything. It is painful. We had people dump paint on the ground. Garbage this people. isn't the same type of film, though. This is like a... I mean, these are people a, trying to make a radio show in a radio station, but they were like, no, this doesn't look good. Switch everything out. That's why this I mean, feels it, real, and that might not feel as real. Yeah, but mm-hmm. Andrew, also, like, what what they were shooting there is was reality, which is sort of an amplified version. No, this was not the reality show. This was for a VH1 oh, this movie. Else. This was for a movie that took place in the 90s at a hip-hop station, which is what uh. we own. It was horrible. Can we get a copy of this movie? I'll find it, yeah. For you. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. good. <laughs> um, but, you know, a lot of times, if the location really works, they'll like just leave it as it is. So how do um, they feel about Al Pacino putting his chewed gum underneath the... Yeah. Well, okay, so the, the stuff that they actually interact with, they, they probably created. The but set was like, so the... hot that gum wouldn't stick. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, Chris found a great quote from from Roger Ebert about the set and sort of talks about what what we were sort of getting at. But he said, um, the shabby real estate office in Glengarry Glen Ross seems to likely become one of the movie places we'll remember, like the war room in Dr. Strangelove or Hannibal Lecter's cell. And I think he's totally right. It feels like a real place. Like it it, it expressed itself into the movie and it feels like its own character. Where it kind of... The only way that anyone else expresses anything that way is like when when a friend of ours talks about expressing her dog's anal glands. What? Alex. Cosmo's anal glands. Yeah. Yep. 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 Well, you want to move on to uh, thematics here? Yeah, that's that's a great segue into thematics. I mean, the part where I just said, "Let's move on to thematics." Yes, that. (laughs) 
<laughs> so then I wrote a segue into this well, scene, I crashed think it, and it was like, the matters. I think the segue could be that the settings themselves are quite confined. I mean, we do see these mm-hmm. people outside, but even when they're outside, they're in a phone booth, they're in the rain, they're in yeah. a car, they're in, they're in capsules, they're in they're bottles, in whatever they're we in... want a way to put it. They're very confined to both physically and then personally and and in the way they feel we didn't really touch on it is themes of masculinity and maybe that's what we'll get into here but that yeah what is confined as far as their mental state their their direction what they think they're allowed to do and then what they feel they need to do to break free from whatever that confinement is yeah um, and then like you know with is represented in the set so that would be that would be the segue i think yeah yeah. And like you know, you you extend that to that part. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are talking about the medits. Here we are talking about that. But I think you know, I think that ties into you know the theme of the leads, right? Because they feel like they're confined to the bad leads that they can't make any sales because they have bad leads, and therefore they're they're constricted with by that, and they're trying to get the better leads to get. This is the sales. time a carpenter blames his tools. Yes, exactly. Now um, we bring it back. <laughs> Much appreciated. Thank you. Get out there. You got the prospects coming in. You think they came in to get out of the rain? A guy don't walk on the lot lest he wants to buy. They're sitting out there waiting to give you their money. Are you going to take it? Are you man enough to take it? But I think ultimately this is a movie uh, or a story about purpose. But purpose by extension of masculinity, right? Because, like, the idea of masculinity that, say, Alec Baldwin is talking about, that that point of view, and that a lot of these other salesmen are sort of trying to work to is you're only a man if you have a purpose, right? Hmm. And that's what all these try- people are trying to do. And that that's Jack Lemmon's character. That's his, his ultimate conflict is he feels like he's losing his purpose. In the past, he was this, you know, great salesman, and he feels like he's losing that. What makes him tick, and that sort of is what drives him to to keep, you know, these desperate things he's doing, like you know, talking to the Nyborgs and 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 ultimately stealing the leads. Right. Because at the, you know, that's what goes back to what Alec Baldwin is saying. You know, this like, you know, take what you can, go for it, and like, go out there and grab, you know, what you can, and and that's a level of masculinity that's ultimately impossible to attain or, you know, this, this, I, I, this right. This so I wonder, I wonder if it's purpose or if it's yes, perceived. So maybe not purpose, but, um, some sort of tangible yeah, purpose, measure yeah. of that purpose. Sure. Right. And I think so they're all going for right. a dollar amount or a, mm. a Cadillac versus Ooh. the steak knives. Right. Or, and Alec Baldwin yeah. says like, you're a good, you're a good father. Fuck you. Like it doesn't matter. He Nothing says matters, that, but, yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's cold. <laughs> it's very cold. Yeah. <laughs> Except it's hot that day, and that's another part I meant to bring up. His uh, Al Pacino makes a comment it's that it's hot that day, it and does. that's why he shouldn't be drinking right. certain drinks at the bar. That's, very that's where he goes into a big hot. tirade about how hot. he always does things differently than everyone else, like when he has opinions about things. Clear liquors in the summer. His white his pants is also after Labor the only day. one. Right. His desk is also the only one facing a different direction than everybody. That's a great call. That's true. Everyone That's a very good point. Facing forward, and his and is sideways. Yeah. He reminded That's me a, a lot really of you, Vince. You just like to go Alec your Baldwin? own way. Yeah. No, just people no. who hate things that everyone else likes. Oh. 
right. But I think I mean I, I think ultimately the the movie lands or the 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 story lands on the side of like that level of masculinity, that idea of masculinity that that you know Alec Baldwin and, and Mitch and Murray and everyone's trying to achieve is one impossible to achieve because it doesn't exist and it's not an actual measure of personhood. Get mad, you son of a bitches! Get mad. You know what it takes to sell real estate? It takes brass balls to sell real estate. Go and do likewise, gents. The money's out there. You pick it up, it's yours. You don't, I got no sympathy for you. This big balls, like, bravado, just, it can't exist. It's not sustainable. It's not a, you can't, it's not real. And it's not, it's not true to what, humans are and i think it's so important to these people because that's the the culture of this of this office and ultimately the industry is that it drives people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do like like shelly which is a he's a pretty straight-laced guy generally you know as you know as neurotic as he is he's pretty straight-laced but he drives them to break into the office and steal the leads because he needs to meet this this fantastical level that Alec Baldwin portrayed and, and painted. And, and I think one of my favorite scenes um, is towards the end where Al Pacino's like, Levine, the machine, tell me a story. And um, Jack Lemmon recounts one of his best sales that he ever had. Right. And he's like telling it and, you know, like a, like a fishing story, right. Where he's like sort of exaggerating, but you know, he's exaggerating, but that's the point of the, the style of the story that he's telling. But as he's telling it, the camera kind of pulls back. So the mm-hmm. bigger he builds himself in this story, the smaller he becomes in frame. Oh, interesting. And I because that he because he's not just talking about any story. He's talking about the eighty-two thousand dollar one that yeah. we will soon learn is complete is complete false. Yeah. yeah, which adds another level to that. Yeah, and you know I think it just sort of underscores the fact that like these are just guys building themselves up in this fantastical idea unattainable idea of masculinity that doesn't even make any sense and isn't beneficial or or right uh they've got are they all wearing they're all wearing they're all wearing suits but jack has a has a has a short sleeve shirt jack wide 90s ties has suspenders no no he he has his tie on uh his top button undone tie a little so they're all a little sweaty because it's hot yeah exactly yeah Hmm. The rich get richer. That's the law of the land. These guys are nobodies to Mitch and Murray. They're like some bullshit offshoot office down in fucking Sheepshead Bay, or you know the Chicago, Chicago equivalent of Sheepshead Bay, which is I don't know what that would be. But um, right? Are they all so their 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 company is called Premier Properties, but they're owned what, by Mitch. What and the Murray, hell does that even mean? Yeah. To be right. fair, if you got a spam troll on your phone and it said Premier Properties, I'd never pick that up. Yeah, yeah, but I, this is you yeah, know, I, I, this is a I bunch of trash immediately. Yeah, but my point is, they're trying to work towards like impressing Mitch and Murray and impressing Alec Baldwin, moving up that way. But like, they don't give a shit about these guys. They don't. They absolutely don't. No one's getting anything from them. But mm-hmm. like, they're still going to work towards it anyway because it's that unatta- Like, they still somehow think, you know, if if I'm the, like this great salesman, I'm like this like man, I'll get, like, a sports car or steak knives or whatever, and, like, and then I'll move up. But, like, no, they don't give a shit. And they, that's pretty clear, I think, that the company, parent company doesn't give a shit about them, but they don't quite realize that. 
Well, no, I was going to say is that uh, Alec Baldwin's character, Blake, comes in as a representation of Mitch and Murray and is clearly unattainable. And more than that, from, from the salesman's perspective, he has no faith in them, in their ability to change their mm-hmm. position. So that should be a representation of Mitch and Murray who sent well, him out there. They don't give a shit if they do any better or not. I just, but. you know, like capitalism, it's, it's demonstrated like the good leads go to the people that are selling the most. So the, the people that are selling the most are getting the best leads and they're getting more money because they're getting the best leads. So like capitalism, if you have the most money, you're going to be making more money from your money. Basically, the people with the most mm-hmm. get the most, basically. Because yeah, the poor people yeah. at the bottom get the shit leads, they can't make anything out of them. Like the 1%. And they're stuck in, exactly. they're stuck in the bottom. So he's saying, how am I going to do anything with these shit leads? And you're only giving the good leads to the people that already have good sales, basically. That's sort of what they're doing. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah that's, that's exactly, that's exactly it. Yeah. That's that's the crux of it. The separation gets greater and greater between the two. There's kind of a an authentic desperation to that, right? Where I don't know, maybe especially today compared to the 1992, where like, or maybe it was the same in 1992 and has you know changed in the 30 years, but it feels really prescient now. Where like those gaps are much bigger than they were. 20 years ago maybe it's easier for us to recognize that now than it was a while ago yeah so this is like a big movie in like the zeitgeist of movies and like it was big at the time or not really big at the time it wasn't that interesting i guess to to a lot of people there were better movies but since then it's become a much bigger point of conversation like what is the legacy that this movie's held since then yeah well well, we're still talking about it what is it 20 what does wikipedia say Oh, it says a lot of things. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm sure it mentions references. I mean, to it references a bunch of things. It, the Office yeah. even ref- even talks about it, like always be closing. And yeah. Well, I think the ABCs and yeah. It's it's it. it ha- I think it has two distinct legacies. Okay. Right. What's number one? I think it has a legacy built specifically off Alec Baldwin's scene. Right. The oh, always yeah, be closing. Huge. Coffees for closers. I think some movies have really good lines, like just really good quotes. And speaking of quotes. And a little bit touching on the masculinity, we don't need to use this, but they there were a lot of signs in their office. This also goes back to the setting. This kind of like loops in all of the things we've talked about. They had all these signs in their office. Like the motivational. Made they are born. Yeah, self-made or not made. What he aims for, a man's reach should exceed his grasp, and I think all of those, and I'm sure there were others that I missed, are exemplary. Of all the things we've discussed. A, B, C. A, always B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. I think the other legacy is, is the one we talked about a little bit already, which is like the way people look at this movie from a technical standpoint, right? You know, in terms of like the way it's acted and written, people study it as, you know, one of the best written movies, one of the best acted movies of all time. And I, it's kind of interesting that the two of them exist in parallel, right? Because you have... Mm-hmm. One legacy that's kind of a joke based on one scene and one where it's very foundational to education, forwarding of the art in the context of cinema specifically. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. You know, so like, um, yeah, it existed yeah. as a play, but if you're talking about the, in the, within the context of cinema and someone's like studying to be a writer or an actor for movies specifically, that mm-hmm. will look at this movie for its achievements in that. So yeah, Bobby Cannavale said, that every actor or anybody who wanted to be an actor in 1992 went and saw this movie, and he bought the DVD, the VHS, and the DVD for it. Both? Uh, when Why he do you wanted mean to both? be an actor. 
I don't know why he would need ball. Compare the two. You know, because formats change. Maybe his VCR Uh, tracking wasn't working. So even though it wasn't a commercial success, and audiences, the general public didn't see it, obviously in the acting community, it had a big uh, impact, and Hmm. actors... Or one of the actors went to see it. Yeah, or, or, yeah. I think and I think Bobby in that Cannavale, way, it's, I think from that quote, it seems to imply that like he was interested in it when he was starting out as an actor, and ultimately ended up in a stage, uh, a restaging of it later, which sort of speaks of its legacy on actors. There are a lot of things to be learned about acting from the things that are trying to be taught about salesmanship within yeah. this movie, which is an interesting correlation because salesmen and actors don't necessarily always have the same end priorities yet their means seem to be almost synonymous you're try- you're getting whoever's on the receiving end and for an actor it's the audience for the salesman it's it's your lead or whatever you're trying to get them to a certain place and get them on the same page as you and give them something whether that's an idea or a product that they wouldn't have already had Bobby Cannavale played uh, Ricky Roma in that revival to okay. Al Pacino's Levine. So they're oh, oh they were, that was the same staging. I didn't yeah. know that. Wow. wow. That's probably yeah. really good. 2012, so recent. Do you know who, who played the other, um, the other character? Uh, yeah, uh, David Harbour from Stranger Things, as you might know, played John oh, Wilson. Yeah. Uh, oh. John McGinley played Moss. That's a great Who was the Moss actor? Gilbert Godfrey. Uh, John McGinley. John McGinley, yeah, you know him. He was in, sounds um, familiar. He was Dr. Cox from Scrubs. Oh, yeah. yeah and oh, and wow. in Office, Office Space. Space, he's one of the Bobs yeah. in Office yeah, Space. Yeah, of course. Uh, of yeah. course. Wow, that's a great cast. Nice. But, it, you know, it sort of it like points to like how good these characters are. We're like, this ensemble in the movie is fantastic, right? It's like, it's awesome. It's perfect. But it's not the end-all be-all. Like, Bowser just listed off all those actors that were in that staging, and those like... Those were all great castings for those characters. Yeah, because and in 2005 there was a there was a revival with Lev Schreiber, Alan Alda, Jeffrey Tambor, uh, and Tom Wopat. So there you that go. sounds oh, a lot funnier. <laughs> <laughs> um, Al Pacino, as uh, 20 years older, whatever he would have been at that mm-hmm. time, yeah, 20 yeah, years. Pl- yeah, playing almost the antithesis as far as f- from the salesman yeah. perspective. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Al Pacino but, is, as as. Yeah. Okay, so okay. we we touched on the theme of masculinity, and, and it is a huge part of this story. And so to switch to women would be a fascinating way to distill kind of how there is a power dynamic beyond masculinity or femininity and however that presents itself in society or in the workplace. I would be interested to see how that would be done, but I, I feel it would take a good amount of of rewriting and rethinking about the priorities of a masculine-driven purpose and a feminine-driven purpose to strike the same tone. I um, I mean, you could probably use, like, Rihanna and Aquafina (laughs) and... um, um, Well, we could play that game. Julia Roberts. We we can um, say who who would play the You could use, like, five of the Ocean's Eight. But I think there are certain (laughs) levels of bravado and even then insecurity and lack of control within the masculine themes of this movie and this story that may not necessarily either need to be present within a gender swapped feminine version of this story. I mean is there have a female to be Alec Baldwin period? 
Tina Fey. Um, no. <laughs> who's who's the woman on? Uh, I can't think of Ingram. One. Ingram from Fox. She's a newscaster. Laura Ingram. Laura yeah, Ingram? Laura Ingram. Ingram. Or um, no, the other Fox reporter, Janine Ke- Pinera. Pira. Oh, Pira. Yeah. Oh. Oh. She'd oh, make God. a yeah. great person to do that scene. So oh, I, I think what would be all. interesting if they they made an all female version and didn't change anything about the script not a single thing about the script yep i think it would be interpreted completely differently of course i think people would be talking about way different things they wouldn't be i mean obviously they wouldn't be talking masculinity but they wouldn't be talking about the same kind of power dynamics they would be talking more about the individual personalities of the women in it i don't know the best way to describe it but it it would be like the scene with Jack Lemmon and Kevin Spacey, right? And there's that subtle shift in power. If it was women today, people would be talking about how one of them's a bitch and it would end in there. It's just, it's such a different thing. And like, it, it sucks with the idea that like to change the script, not to adapt it to women as characters, but you have to adapt it to the way the audience would perceive the characters as women. That that's fair. I mean, you have to change all the he's to she's. Oh, that's what. That's a big one. That's a big. I mean, that would be a dead. That's a lot of work, right away. (laughs) Forget it. (laughs) To Rob's point, it would only be perceived as a woman trying to be masculine, and so it would still be within a a lens of masculinity that people would look at at the film, and why a lot of people would hate it. That oh, these women are trying to be men, which is why I would say if you want to do. The story justice as far as the insecurities and desperation and power struggle of people trying to work and get ahead, you would have to change the script to cater it so it's not so testosterone and male-driven. David Mamet wrote it for male characters. No, I know. in, In a specific time period, too, which is another thing to take into account. So why wouldn't you want to change? Sure. No, I guess... I don't think there should be any hesitation to change... The, the even just down to the dialect, the word choice, the vernacular that's used by these people and how they talk. I mean, it's, no, I guess I guess my point yeah. is, is is it sucks because of that idea of masculinity that exists already right. that that Mamet was basing the script on. I think that's my point. Yeah, it would be really funny if they came up instead of with just mimicking the story, made it more like a like an alternate thing where there's a an all-female real estate uh, company that works across the street, and they're just crushing it, like, left and right. They have no problem. <laughs> At the same time, like, it's intercut with scenes where they look out the window, and they see, like, the guys running in the rain. They're like, what the fuck are these guys doing running in the yeah, rain? And it, they run and to the bar only... every 30 minutes. Like, these guys <laughs> are hammered. You wonder why they can't make a sale. It's it's and only raining. They're, they're it's only raining on, on the just other having office. a great time. <laughs> Stained collars and miserable. <laughs> so I think we're at a point where we should all kind of try to give this movie a rating. I know that we've Out done this in the past. Oh, you one can, to you six can choose years? your scale. I don't care. <clears throat> I we we're not all abiding by the same scale. No, no. Everyone can pick their own scale. Yeah, everyone has their own. Let's okay. do that. Very so good. I'll start. Yeah, um, Andrew starts. So I liked my Aladash a lot. It was good. I didn't like the uh, McKellar nearly as much. But um, it was 7.5% ABV beer. So I'm going to give this Wikipedia page and this story probably about a 6 out of 7.5. That's great. 
Yeah, it's so um, unfortunate yeah. the amount of math you're forcing yeah, yeah. on listeners. Yeah, the, the, anyone that's listening already knows math. Let's be honest. It's just Jeff Madonna. <laughs> so the first beer, I like the Allagash more than the Beer Geek Breakfast, but honestly, both are not quite my style of beers. I like coffee, and I like beer. I have enjoyed a few of the combinations of the two, but... Uh, and, and I would say the Allagash is closer to a better combination of a beer and coffee than I would like. So I'm going to rate Beer Geek, which is the second beer we had, at about a 4.5 out of 10. Mm. And I'm going to oh. give the Allagash a 5 hmm. out of 10. And that's in overall rating of beer. All beers, um, all the time. All right. beers, all the time, not in coffee mm. beers. If yeah. it was coffee beers, I'd give the Allagash what's, uh, uh, what's probably a, somewhere what's like a, a 9. What's a, what's a 10 out of 10? Uh, haven't had it yet. So we have that to f- try to find that. Sometime I can't, I can't, in, how, can I, how can I mark it? In the, I in will the span say of I, this podcast, we will find your 10 out of 10, Ben. We will find it. If it's I'm the one in tough. charge of picking Because as soon as I have a really it. good tasting beer, my scale is going to change. Yeah. Anyway. Mm, sure. Um, and the movie, I give it a 5 out of 5. I think it's a well-crafted movie. And as far as movies are concerned, they took the medium to... It's full ex- extent. The medium. The medium. The meat um, While using some of the best talent around to convey that story that had been written cool. so beautifully on as well. All right. So, uh, Bowser Tom. I haven't had the beers. I had my own beer. Should I rate my own beer? Or should I yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Rate, your, yeah, own rate beer. your own beers. But rate it out right. of our beers. So, my beer was a Velvet Sea, a Pale Ale by Greenport Harbor Brewing Company. Well, probably better than both of ours. Uh, it's five percent alcohol. Has a great label. Um, I, well, I can attest it has a great label. <laughs> After all the opinions you gave, nobody trusts your opinion. <laughs> it's a seasonal beer. It's a, it's a spring seasonal beer, and it's great. It's a great pale ale. It's just a solid, drinkable pale ale. Crushable. I give that a, uh, a ninety-two out of a hundred. All right. Wow. And, okay. Uh, How would you rate the film? Ninety-two. I'd, I'd actually probably rate the movie around the same. Maybe a ninety-four. I'd say for the movie. It's so like a nine point four uh, out of ten. When you were no, when you were gonna give no, it a four out of five. <laughs> I, when, when you were gonna give it a four out of five, I thought you were just reading the date. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think the dialogue is great. The actors are fantastic. I think this is probably my second favorite play movie after Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. If I had to rank it, I'd put it probably above A Streetcar Named Desire and Cat in the Hot Tin Roof. And uh, yeah, so I'd give it a 94. Alright, great. The next movie I think we're going to do is North by Northwest. Mm, I hope is, there's a Wikipedia you know, page. If, if we're talking about classic movies, this is like one of the classic of the classics. That's uh, the one where he's running down the street and the planes... Coming in. Yeah, and he's he's going kind of a little, you know, he's running down the street where he's going kind of to the east and a little bit south. Not north by northwest. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it's Alfred Hitchcock, Cary Grant. It's it's absolute legendary combination of director and actor. Fantastic. Um, and it's an amazing movie, and there's a lot to talk about in it. Cool. Looking forward to it. Thanks everyone for joining us. Everybody, wash your hands. Wash your hands for three hours. That's the the moral of this story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sing happy birthday 600 times.